This is Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School in New York City, and I'm Alex Alenikov. Over the past year, there's been an avalanche of new books on immigration, and for this season of Tempest Tossed, we'll speak with authors of some of those books. I'm delighted that kicking off our season is Alina Das, professor of clinical law at NYU Law School, where she co-directs the Immigrant Rights Clinic. Alina, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it. You've recently published a book entitled No Justice in the Shadows, How America Criminalizes Immigrants. And I I think the title gives a pretty clear sense of the theme uh, of the book. I want to get into the book in a minute, but but let's start by talking about you. Can you say a few words about your role as co-director of the NYU Immigrant Rights Clinic? Sure. So at the NYU Immigrant Rights Clinic, I work with law students in their second and third years representing immigrants who are facing deportation and detention, as well as working with community organizations that are trying to fight back against the system of deportation and detention in the U.S. It's a great experience working with people who are new to the law, um, who are really excited to use it as a tool for justice instead of a tool of oppression. Can you tell me about a, a recent case in the clinic that illustrates some of the arguments you make in the book? So most recently, I've been working on the case of Usman Darbo, who is a a husband and a father who was uh, taken from his home in the Bronx in New York three years ago um, in 2017 by ICE. And he has been detained for those full three years. And one of the reasons that he has been detained is because he has a criminal conviction for unarmed robbery that he was accused of committing over six years ago. And it was really the culmination, his arrest was a culmination of a series of arrests he had as a kid growing up in the Bronx, where pretty soon after coming to the United States from the Gambia, he was essentially placed on on what we describe as a classic school-to-prison pipeline. Um, there were police in his neighborhood, in his schools. He felt their presence more viscerally than the presence of teachers in many ways. And that contact led to some juvenile offenses and eventually this unarmed robbery conviction, which he, he's always maintained his innocence for, but at the same time recognized that he was facing this conviction in part because of things that he did as a youth and being on on the radar of the police in his neighborhood. And we took on the case to help try and get him out of detention. And as part of that fight, we worked with his family and community members to really push Governor Cuomo to recognize how, how much his life has changed, everything that he has done since, you know, th- these really hard times as a, as a young person. Five days after he was detained, he found out he was going to be a dad. He and his partner welcomed their child while he was in detention. And he had to, to build this life for this future he wanted that ICE was trying to take away. And so he got his GED while he was in detention. He worked really hard and was actually named to a leadership position in the in the immigration jail and really demonstrated that he was turning his life around. And Governor Cuomo did grant him a pardon back in February of 2020. And yet I still wouldn't let him go. And we had to sue. We had to sue multiple times, even as COVID-19 hit the facility he was detained in. We had to convince a judge to, to release him. And, and the judge was hesitant to do that because of 
feeling that the jail was trying to combat COVID-19. And it was an incredibly frustrating experience for my students and I to, to see that, that every door seemed to close. There was, there was no place for justice for this young man. But we kept going, we, <laughs> we kept suing, and eventually a federal court ordered the government to provide him with a new bond hearing, a new chance to demonstrate that he wasn't a flight risk or danger and, and put the burden really on the government to justify why this man had to remain in detention even after his entire criminal record was cleared. We pointed to his family ties. We pointed to what he did as a young man to, to change his life and the community support that he garnered. And because of that, the judge did order his release. And I met him outside of the big federal building in Manhattan and stood with him just a few days ago while he was feeling the rain on his face for the first time in three years. And that feeling of freedom and understanding that that he finally got that was, was incredibly rewarding and illustrates a lot of the problems that I talk about in my book. Alina, does Governor Cuomo's pardon remove the ground uh, of deportation for him, or is he still removable according to ICE? So he's still removable according to ICE. And, and so he's somebody who's facing deportation because he overstayed his visa when he was seven years old. That's, that's the primary problem that, that brought him into immigration proceedings. But what the conviction did, what having a criminal record did, meant that he had to apply for a waiver and he had to meet a certain hardship standard that is very difficult to meet in immigration court. And the judge looked at his life and said, I just don't think you meet it. And so getting the pardon, uh, we argue, removes that barrier, but ICE is still fighting. And that's exactly what attaching immigration consequences to a criminal record does. It creates this kind of second punishment that follows people around their entire lives, even after they've literally paid their debt to society. Let's dig into the book here. And in the book, you go back really to the beginning of U.S. immigration and citizenship laws and policies. And you start by saying that the popular narrative on U.S. immigration ignores what you call racialized exclusion how would you describe that popular narrative and, and what do you think it excludes? I think we like to tell ourselves, and, and this is repeated both by people in kind of mainstream media discussions about immigration, as well as statements made by immigrant rights groups themselves, we like to think that we are a nation of immigrants. And this story often describes the United States as a place that welcomes immigrants, that allows people to live out the American dream. And there's a lot of problems with that framing of the U.S. as a nation of immigrants. First and foremost, it ignores the fact uh, that there are many people who were native to this land at the time that the United States of America was created and were not immigrants in the sense that we talk about immigrants today. And it also ignores the experience of enslaved Black people and indentured people, individuals who came here through forced migration and were certainly not welcomed other than to provide their labor. And I think that's really telling because it's really that history of wanting to control Indigenous people and enslaved people in the U.S. that becomes the foundation for federal immigration law. We see the rise of federal immigration law really being about control, this, this desire that comes about post-Civil War to create a federal immigration law designed to exclude primarily in, initially Chinese immigrants from this country. And even, you know, going back 
to the very beginning, you know, our naturalization laws being limited to free white persons, that that history of, of using immigration law specifically to target people of color, un- unwanted people, I think tells us much more about the purpose of immigration law in this country than a narrative that describes the U.S. as this as this welcoming place, as this nation of immigrants where we all join together in kind of the melting pot to make this country what it is. And, and so I think it's important for us to recognize the history of racism in the formation and foundations of immigration law. You state that that overtly racist language, both in our laws and in our narrative, is no longer legally or socially acceptable. And you argue that what's replaced it is an immigrant as criminal narrative that helps to justify uh, the large-scale exclusion and expulsion of communities of color. When and how do you think that shift in language uh, occurred? So I think we see this this language about targeting immigrants as criminals come up at, at pretty pivotal points in the history of immigration law. The first being around the idea of excluding immigrants from the U.S. federally at all. It's, it's a core part of how the Page Act of 1875 got enacted, and there are debates in which congressional officials talk about um, Chinese people as being you know, prostitutes and men as petty thieves and fraudsters, where this language of criminality comes to bear. We see it during the Great Depression, where we see President Hoover in his State of the Union address in 1930 talking about the need to rid America of, quote, criminal aliens, unquote. And so we see it kind of coming in and out of debates when it's convenient, when it's useful. But racial exclusion largely did the work of of keeping people out. And so the real resurgence of this language and reliance comes after the 1960s, after national origins quotas are eliminated. And when we enter this period, this post-civil rights period, where our federal government becomes obsessed with law and order, the idea of using the criminal legal system as a means of controlling people and using that specifically to go after Black people, U.S. citizens who are Black after the the civil rights um, victories of the 1960s gives way to the war on crime, the war on drugs. And for immigrants, immigrants are are wrapped up in that conversation as well. After the 1965 Act, you suddenly have a real shift in the demographics of who's legally coming to the United States um, and also who can no longer come to the United States legally. And that combination, this kind of creation of a a larger group of people who come under this label of folks who are coming without authorization, as well as the legal immigration of people of color from Asia and Africa, you know, really changing the racial demographics. You see the same desire to use law and order as part of the immigration debate where you have, particularly in the 1980s, elected officials calling for investigations about why there are so many immigrants in our prisons and jails in this country of really wanting to root out this dangerous element. You see debates um, as part of the law, various immigration laws that that get passed in the late 1980s, some of which are part of the drug war itself, that target immigrants who have some sort of criminal record 
And that's really used to then describe this new population of the quote unquote immigrant as criminal as a reason why we need to build up a deportation machine. And that carries right on through into the 1990s with the 1996 laws passed by President Bill Clinton that really expand the grounds of deportation and detention based on contact with the criminal legal system. Much of this is uncontroversial because of how powerful this label is that when you describe someone as a criminal, suddenly the full force of our punitive laws and systems can be used against them without stopping to think about whether we're actually solving a problem or creating one. As you tell the story, I think back on on President Obama's attempt to rein in ICE discretion by saying, ICE, don't pick up anybody on this, just anybody on the street who might have overstayed their visa or come in without authorization. Rather, we should be focusing on serious criminals. That's how we should marshal our resources to, to remove people from the United States. Do you think that that may have inadvertently then reinforced this idea of immigrants as criminals? Absolutely. So I, I think President Obama in his 2014 speech on immigration, where he is actually trying to defend policies that are pro-immigrant, where he's trying to get the American people on board with using discretion to protect some immigrants from deportation. He walks straight into this dividing line, this good versus bad immigrant narrative by saying that we should deport felons, not families. And when you frame this kind of view of, of the appropriate use of immigration policy in this way, it does draw a line in our minds where we see immigrants as either good or bad, that you either have a family and are a hardworking person trying to contribute to your community here in the U.S., or you're a dangerous felon who is here to harm people. And the reality is, of course, that people can have felony convictions and families too. People can be hardworking community members and also have had contact with the criminal legal system. And so when you have someone like President Obama, who is a champion for immigrants, who cares deeply about immigrant rights, use this framework, it reinforces the idea that when we do deport people, um, it is because they are bad people and that because there are bad people who are immigrants, we do need this deportation machinery to keep running. And that justification is part of what allowed President Trump to then take this deportation machinery and expand it and to really run with it and to remove you know, some of the, the very uh, modest limitations that President Obama began to put into place towards the end of his presidency, those were just simply not robust to withstand this overriding rhetoric that you need deportation and the deportation machinery to protect the public. So let, let's talk about this uh, deportation machinery. You talk about a, a mass deportation regime now in the United States that is uh, primarily focused on people who've been convicted of uh, crimes. There, there are many Americans who would say, look, people who have come here and they haven't become citizens and they've been convicted of serious crimes um, should be asked to leave the country. They've abused their the invitation that was extended to them. We welcome people who, who lived law-abiding lives. Are, I'm not, I want to be clear on your argument. Are you saying that, that there should be really no deportation power in the federal government or that it should be limited in certain ways? And if so, how would you limit it? 
I guess there are there are two levels in terms of my answer to that question. One is is certainly what I talk about in the book, which focuses on my primary argument being that the the harms of this deportation machinery, including its reliance on the criminal legal system to make these decisions about who gets to stay and who gets to go, is far more harmful than it is helpful. That it that it doesn't actually do what people think. It does. It doesn't actually identify people who are harming the community. It doesn't protect the public. It just reproduces harm. And so you you see this in stories like the ones that I tell in my book um, about mothers who are picked up by ICE dropping their kids off at school because of an incident that happened on their criminal record 10 years ago and for which they've already paid their debt to society through the criminal legal system. And now you're taking a mother away from their children. You're leaving those children to fend for themselves. You're creating a gaping hole in the fabric of that community and our society. And that this does happen in the vast majority of cases to Latinx and Black communities in the U.S., um, compounding all of the other societal problems that they face. That is a harm-producing policy solution. And, And for that reason, in my book, I propose ways of trying to pull those two systems apart, not relying so heavily on the criminal legal system to do this work. But ultimately, if the question is whether or not I personally believe that we should ever deport people from the United States, the conclusion that I have personally reached after working with immigrants and defending their right to simply live and be here in their homes with their families is that no, that, that, that I don't think anyone should be deported. That, that That is ultimately my vision is one where we don't rely on where a person is born to make decisions about who deserves to be here or not. I see that as a form of legalized discrimination, that just because you weren't born here, a different set of rules applies to you. And so I would like to see us move to a place where we no longer allow people to be punished on a greater level because they weren't born here. So that that is ultimately my view. But even for those who are not there who, who believe that that deportation does or can serve uh, a net positive purpose for a country. You know, I, what my book tries to do is to explain why relying on the criminal legal system, relying on, on these labels of criminality as a shortcut for deciding who deserves to stay and go um, only uh, replicates harm and, and in, does so in a way that really relies on, on the underlying foundational racism under both our immigration and criminal legal systems. So I want to get back to the the broader points you raise, which are interesting in a moment, but let's pick up on the proposals for reform. So you've described a situation in which uh, currently people who've committed crimes a long time ago and have lived good lives since, even some who have been pardoned by the governor, as you described at the beginning of our conversation here, how these people are still removable from the country under these kind of unbending deportation laws. What, what kinds of reforms would you put in place if you could rewrite the legislation other than moving to a position that no one should be removed from the country? Sure. So, um, you know, the final chapter of, of my book tries to identify a few concrete policy proposals that can 
start to detach our decisions in the immigration system from the criminal legal system. And one of those proposals is to end a program called Secure Communities. Secure Communities essentially is it's a fingerprinting program where um, when a person is uh, arrested and their fingerprints are taken anywhere in the United States under Secure Communities, that fingerprint information is shared with the Department of Homeland Security. And, and in that way, people are, are basically tagged for potential deportation. If you're undocumented, it could be as simple as that. No matter what happens to the criminal offense, you are deportable just for that reason alone. If you have legal status but are not yet a U.S. citizen, depending on what you might have in your criminal record, even if it was from a very long time ago, that can be enough to tag you for deportation. And um, as I argue in the book, this creates all sorts of unintended consequences where you see people, um, like many of the clients I describe, who face deportation for things a very long time ago and are simply unable in our current legal system to apply for discretion to have a day in court where they can explain to a judge why it's actually worse for their community, for our country as a whole, for them to be deported, that there's just no safety valve. Another example I give in that chapter is ending Operation Streamline, which is a zero-tolerance program by which anybody who crosses the southern border unlawfully is basically placed into criminal prosecution in addition to the normal deportation process or what's become the normal deportation process. And that I think is a, it's a pretty horrifying thing for anyone who's observed it, where you see people chained together in a courtroom, sometimes as, as much as 50, 60, 70 people at a time being placed in these mass prosecution proceedings where clearly no one understands what's happening and they end up with a criminal record that will prevent them in many cases from, from being able to seek relief, make it harder for them to unite with families. And it's, it's a really coercive, it's, it's counter to all of our basic values in terms of what a justice system in the U.S. should look like. And it has been very key as part of President Trump's kind of revival of the family separation program. It's been a key part of that and I think also needs to go. Um, And these are the kinds of changes that a, a new president could make without Congress. These are programs that have been put into place through executive action, through executive policies that can be rolled back as a, as a first step towards legislative change, which is ultimately what I think we need to, to truly pull apart the criminal and immigration legal system. So just as you're trying to pull apart the criminal justice systems and the, and the deportation system, I'm wondering if at the same time you're seeing possibilities here for coalition building uh, between the movement for racial justice and the immigrants' rights communities. Are you are you seeing common cause being made between these groups? Yes, the, the immigrant rights and, and um, criminal legal reform groups, as well as, as really kind of this stronger emerging movement towards abolitionist policies that have come out over the last few years, I think there's been a real a real synergy between these various movements. And, you know, we see this pretty prominently right now in the movement for Black Lives, where coming off of yet another uh, period in which so many Black people have been killed by the police and a, a revival and a recognition that 
reform just isn't enough, that tinkering with the current system is not enough to produce change, that we really need to shift resources and and focus away from kind of the politics of punishment, of policing, prosecution, of prisons, and back towards communities that need those resources to thrive through education and social support and healthcare. I think that narrative that has been so strongly presented by the movement for Black Lives really synergizes with um, the movement around immigrant rights, where you have communities saying that, you know, we need the federal government to stop pouring its resources into this deportation machinery and instead really shift focus towards thinking about how immigrants can be supported in their communities, how how everyone can be allowed to, to live a life of safety and security um, in the way that that individuals experience it as opposed to the way that safety and security is often used as a justification for the kind of policing that we've seen have a a negative effect on Black communities and the kind of immigration policing we've seen have a negative effect on immigrant communities. If we shift resources away from policing and into other, you know, diversion programs, alternative programs, so that people don't get caught up in the criminal legal system, if we stop kind of harmful and invasive policies like the kinds of stop and frisk policies that we had previously been seeing and still occur under different names here in New York City, all of that, reducing that contact with policing and the apparatus of policing not only helps all people, it has a specific benefit to immigrants because it cuts off this funnel into the deportation pipeline. And so when we stand up and we support the movement for Black Lives, when we support criminal law reform, when we when we stand up for those movements, it helps not only U.S. citizens, it has a, a very particular positive effect on immigrant rights as well. So I see the argument here that the, the defund police argument uh, comes very close to the abolish ICE argument in the sense that resources are now being used for the community support and for welcoming immigrants or for, for making communities safer in different ways. It does run into the broader argument that, that you raised earlier on, that if, if you take an abolish ICE position, some people might say, well, you're really just uh, arguing for uh, open borders. What's your response? So I think there is generally a misconception about uh, what it means to abolish ICE or to defund the police, where people have a sense that folks who are arguing for these these platforms don't care about the safety of communities. And I think the opposite is true. There are a few things more violent than waking up in the middle of the night and having your parent taken from your home and disappeared. And and that is the experience that so many immigrants have had over many years across different administrations as a result of our deportation machinery. Um, Similarly, obviously, the experience of people in Black communities who have been the targets of policing where you know, even when there are instances where there is is some reason that a person has contacted the police because that's their only option, and then having a person uh, be shot, to be killed as a result of that contact. This is the kind of extreme violence that communities face that have driven calls to defund the police or abolish ICE. And the idea is not 
to no longer care about safety. It is to actually make sure that our ideas of what safety means includes everyone in the community and to come up with a better way. So abolishing ICE specifically doesn't mean renaming the agency or it doesn't necessarily even mean open borders in the sense that we no longer care who's coming here, when they're coming, how they're coming. It means actually focusing on what the real harms are and making sure they don't occur. So if there is, for example, a concern about terrorism, right, then we should talk to experts in terrorism. And I, I cover this in one of the chapters of my book. Say like labeling things as, as an immigration problem, pretending that, you know, having tighter visa restrictions or vetting is going to do the job actually distracts us from the hard work that needs to be done in identifying when somebody is truly a threat to the United States, right? While I understand that people can see terms like abolish ICE and defund the police as being, feeling that they're very dramatic and that they don't account for safety, it's, it's really the opposite is true. And these are just shorthands for talking about the need for truly transformative change rather than just simply relabeling agencies or diverting funding from one part of policing to the other without really thinking about the kinds of of protocols and programs we need for communities to really be safe. Alina, the title of the book is No Justice in the Shadows. Can you tell me where that title came from and what it means to you? Sure. Well, the, the title really comes from a sense that I have long had. I talk a little bit in the book about how you know, I grew up here. I was born in the U.S., but as a child of immigrants from India, and you know, we we've raised to to really appreciate, understandably, uh, all of the the wonderful things about this country and and all of the the benefits that that we've received by being able to be here and to to be really appreciative of that system. And we're you know we're always asking. You know, the the demand has always been you know, to, to bring people out of the shadows, to talk about how there's a segment of, of our immigrant communities who are, who are here without authorization or here in violation of the law and that they, they need to come out of the shadows. And I, the title of the book really comes from a place where slowly as I was growing up, I, I realized that why aren't we talking about why the shadows are here in the first place? Like we're so focused on who deserves to be here, who deserves to come, how thankful we should be to have these opportunities that we forget to look at why we have a system that allows these kinds of shadows to exist, that allows those of us who are part of immigrant communities to be divided into good and bad. And the title of the book and and the purpose of the book is to to recast our gaze away from ourselves and, and trying to justify our existence and towards the laws and the policies and the systems that have allowed us to be divided, that have made it so hard for people to thrive in this this country and to really focus on how those laws and systems need to change. Alina Das, it's been great talking with you today about your new book, No Justice in the Shadows, How America Criminalizes Immigrants. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Sahil Ansari is our producer and engineer, and Eli Alenikov composed our music. 
We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest, all one word, at gmail.com.